Cat Disgusted is a show about veterinary nursing. It is not a show about how to cure your sick pet. If your animal is sick, take it to the vet. Don't be a crazy person and use a podcast to cure your puking cat, dog, chinchilla, etc., etc. I think they would tell you the same thing. If they could. Which they can't. Which makes it hard. You know what's up. Take them to the vet. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for the best of times and the worst of times in veterinary nursing. What the hell are we doing? Well, it's Chihuahua snapping feral cats flailing all while working with the baddest bitches in the business. I'm your host, Nicole Dickerson, RBT, and this... It's how our week went. Hello, my darlings, and welcome back to Cat Disgusted and our final installment of the uh, summertime emergency series that we're, that we're doing. It's a little it's a little late in the old summertime, but not it doesn't feel like it's late for summertime because seriously, it has been like Hades in the Bay Area for those of you who are experiencing this. Heat, um it was 105 out on our back porch area, back patio area, and that's unbelievable. Like I feel like the whole time that we've been in Richmond, it's never really been over. I mean, it's been 100, but not over that and to have it be 105 is crazy. So it's been hot. It's been busy in emergency. Um, good on you, though, uh, people out there, because I feel like we have not seen as many heat strokes in our emergency department as you would think. Uh, we saw a chinchilla. That was the last one that I saw that had heat stroke. And I was like, don't they live in the desert? Aren't they like desert animals? But I was wrong. They are mountain animals in arid climates. So dry climates, but not necessarily hot climates. So apparently chinchillas are like super susceptible to heat stroke. So, you know, watch out for your chinchillas getting over the top hot. Um, but today it's all about another type of emergency. Um, I'm going to talk about rattlesnake bites because that's something that happens uh, more often in the summer when the snakes are out sunning themselves on the rocks and in the dirt paths of hiking trails and that kind of thing. Uh, we totally do see it uh, in my hospital. We, you know, when I was working at uh, my first job in Berkeley, we did not see it as much. But now I work in Dublin, which is uh, much hotter, much more central. And we totally see uh, snake bites over the summer. Um, they like to hang out in the the vineyards of Livermore because I think they like they're because the the vineyards are just like these long rows of the vines, right? But it's kind of fairly open, really. And I think they just sit in that open sunlight and heat themselves up. And that's how we get into trouble. Um, so the type, of, uh, the type of rattlesnake that typically we're dealing with, it's called the Northern Pacific Rattlesnake. And the family is, I'm probably going to say this wrong, but I believe it's Viperidae. Uh, that's the family. It's pit vipers. And the pit is like not necessarily like a pit that the snakes are all living in, like a snake pit. Uh, but it's the pit is the heat sensing organ that they have. It looks like a little kind of dark indentation. It's between their eye and their nostril. Um, and that heat sensing organ, what that means is, they don't necessarily have to see you to see you. They can be in 
a pitch black environment and they know where their prey is. Like they can get the dead on attack a mouse in the dark just by sensing like where its heat is. And they can tell the shape of it and the size of it by like the size of the heat that's coming off of it. Crazy. Um, so with these guys, the, uh, the Northern Pacific rattlesnake, they belong to a subfamily that's called Crotalidae. Crotalidae? Crotalidae. I'm probably saying that wrong, but I, I, I think I've seen the word written crotalids. Like, you know, like rattlesnakes are crotalids. And so like the subfamily has the A on the end of it. Um, sorry, herpetologist, I'm screwing that up. But this, it is important to know that rattlesnakes are crotalids because the type of antivenom that we use is specific to the snake species. So it is important to know uh, when you're looking at antivenom, if it's for crotalids or crotalidae, that's the one that you want for northern Pacific rattlesnakes. Remember how in um, Snakes on a Plane, how Samuel L. Jackson was like describing the dead snake to the scientists, like, well, it's long and it's blue. That's because the type of antivenom that you use is specific to the species of the snake. And also I get to make a reference to snakes on a plane, a podcast, which is my real motive. So uh, what do we see, right? What do I see in my, uh, in my emergency hospital when these guys get bit? Uh, primarily what we see are dogs that get bit in the nose and in the face. And that totally makes sense, right? Because like dogs are going to stick their face in it to sniff it. And then the snake will bite them on the nose. Um, and cats tend to get bit on their paws. Cause you know how cats will do that kind of like bat, bat, bat thing. That's no- usually what they're doing and the snake will bite their paw. Um, The puncture wounds that these snakes leave, it literally looks like a vampire. Like you can see them. It's a little pair of puncture wounds, little snake fangs right next to each other. Um, And that is a telltale sign. Like if an owner is not sure if they got bit, I don't know, you look for those. You look for that little vampire puncture wound uh, swelling that's right there. And sure enough, if you see that they got bit. Um, When they get bit by these snakes... Uh, the venom makes a huge amount of swelling happen. So the first thing that you see with these guys is swelling and pain. Um, there is usually, if it's a dog, you know, they get it, they, it can swell around their muzzle, swell around their eyes. The venom that these snakes have, it causes tissue death. So it's, it's a necrotic, it's a necrotizing venom. It's a hemotoxic venom. So it's a little bit different um, than some of the other snake venoms that are the neurotoxic ones, like the ones that paralyze your diaphragm and make you stop breathing and so then you die. Um, these ones are really hemotoxic, which means it makes your blood go crazy. It makes it clot where it shouldn't. Um, it's, it's not clotting where it should. Um, the, the tissue damage is causing all this swelling and inflammation. And so actually the, those dogs can get so swollen in their face and in their neck that it can actually compromise their airway. It's like the secondary problem of, of airway obstruction because of the, the envenomation of their tissues. Now the snakes prey, right? If you think about it, the rats and the mice and the small mammals that they're eating, they're, they're tiny. So when the snakes bite those animals, they die immediately. Like it causes cardiovascular collapse for those small animals, but we're big. So we don't get that same immediate 
cardiovascular collapse. However, it doesn't mean that the venom isn't going to do terrible things to us. You know, the, 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 all of those properties that kill the small thing are also going to kill us. It's just going to be a little bit slower and a little bit uh, less immediately catastrophic. But it does tell us that the size of the animal makes a difference uh, as far as the envenomation goes. So if you have a chihuahua that gets bit in the face by a rattlesnake versus like a large husky that gets bit in the face by a rattlesnake, the husky actually has a better chance of living because the chihuahua is closer to the size of what their actual prey is, um, which means that that load of venom in their body is going to do a lot more damage. There is a difference with the a level of envenomation, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but the bigger the dog is, the the it's kind of like the ratio of venom to tissue uh, makes a difference as to how well they're going to do. Here's another nasty factor with the type of venom that these rattlesnakes have. Because they're causing tissue death, in their prey world, that makes perfect sense. Because when that tissue is dying and breaking down, it's actually a what they call a digestive action. <laughs> of that protein in that venom, it's preparing the rat or mouse or squirrel or whatever it is, it's preparing it for the snake to eat it. It's like pre-digesting that. So imagine those compounds are just going to rip through all of our all of our tissues in our body. Um, our immune system is going crazy because it has this foreign protein, foreign proteins or proteases that are in there that are causing all of this damage. And so the inflammation that we're seeing, it's our own body that's doing that. And so all of the cytokines from all of your leukocytes going crazy, um, all of that stuff is actually not affected when you administer antivenom. That's, that's, that I actually you know hadn't thought about until I started reading about this a whole lot is that your own body's response to the venom is as scary as the venom itself, because at least you can administer um, something intravenously that's going to counteract the effects of the of those toxins. But your own body, ooh, that's not going to be affected by that. Um, when inflammation happens, and we've talked about this before, how your vessels all dilate, um, you can get a drop in blood pressure. Uh, the proteases, I've mentioned that word before. So it literally ACE means to break apart like an enzyme. So protease breaks apart proteins. Um, that venom is literally breaking apart the proteins that hold your blood vessels together. So it's kind of like, it, this is like double whammy, right? Because you're getting the inflammation in your body is dilating your capillaries and making them more permeable. And you have this venom, which is breaking down the proteins around your blood vessels. You are going to get nothing but bleeding, 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 swelling, swelling, swelling. Um, it's, it's time, which is of the essence time is a factor. The longer you wait, the more damage that toxin is going to do. So what do we do, right? Dog comes in with a rattlesnake bite. Oh God, let's move quickly. Pain meds. That's the first thing. Cause as you can imagine, all of this catastrophic tissue death is owie, owie, owie. Um, and antivenom. So now you'll hear both the words antivenin and antivenin 
which is V-E-N-I-N, and anti-venom, which is more like a movie term, the anti-venom. Um, they're basically the same thing. Uh, the, what an anti-venin with the N's, as in Nancy's, is it's a derived from animals that have been inoculated with snake venom, and then their serum is collected. That serum is concentrated. Sometimes it's dried um, to be reconstituted, and then it's administered intravenously to animals that have been bit by snakes. Or people that have been bit by snakes. Um, we happen to use one that's derived from horses. So these horses, uh, it works well because they're large animals. You can take a large amount of their blood without and get a large amount of product without killing the animal. Um, they're inoculated with snake venom and then their blood is collected and you get their serum. The serum is loaded with antibodies that the horse has created against the snake venom. And they haven't received enough venom to kill it, but definitely enough to make antibodies against that particular venom. Now, the anti-venin uh, is a, there's one anti-venin that we used to get that was a product of a company called Fort Dodge. And you'll hear that referred to in the veterinary world, like the Fort Dodge anti-venin. Um, it was a bitch, man. I mean, you had to like, time is of the essence, right? So you're like trying to get this stuff into the dog before all of its face rots and falls off. And you have to like reconstitute it. You have to put a certain amount of saline in it to re to make it administrable. And it has to have no chunks in it. And you're putting like, sometimes people would put it on a rocker, but then there was a stipulation. You're not supposed to put it on a rocker. It would just take a lot of time. Um, and so now we actually use one in my hospital called Venom Vet, which is already in a liquid form and you add it to another bag of saline. Um, it makes it very easy and very quick, which is great. Now, you are not, because you are receiving a product that is from out of another animal that is not your species, there can be a reaction to it, uh, like an allergic reaction to it. And so when you administer um, these antivenins, you actually monitor like monitor them like you do blood transfusion. This And this goes for people and for dogs, because, you know, the type of antivenin that a person is going to get is also going to be derived from another animal. Um it's a it's a foreign protein in you like as just like the venom is a foreign protein in you so is the horse serum and so if you if your temperature starts to go up um if you start to get really itchy in your face or redness those are all signs of a reaction and so we do monitor these guys pretty closely like every five minutes take their temperature take their vital signs make sure everything is going okay lots of times we'll give diphenhydramine uh we'll give benadryl so to kind of subdue any kind of reaction that they might have to the anti-venin oh but that ain't it there are other things that can be going on uh, in your world besides just worrying about the administration of this particular product. Um, clotting disorder, coagulopathy. So I mentioned earlier, snake venom can make your blood go crazy. So because your blood is breaking apart, like literally hemotoxic is the word that they use, literally proteins dissolving. It's going to be clotting where it shouldn't. It's going to not clot where it should. Um, a lot of times these guys will need blood transfusions or plasma transfusions. And we're always drawing a blood test, uh, uh, in-house clotting profile, PT and APTT, it stands for prothrombin time to test their clotting capabilities. And these guys will 
come in with normal clotting times, but then as they're in the hospital and we redraw those tests when they've spent some time with this venom in their body, those clotting times can start to go up. And so if they're, if it's bad, if it's real bad, then we give them a uh, fresh frozen plasma and that, that they can receive in, in the hospital <laughs> concurrently with other, uh, with, with anti-venin as well. You sometimes will be giving multiple doses of this anti-venin because you're binding, um, binding up all of that venom that's still circulating in their system. And sometimes one bag ain't enough. Uh, you can also, when they're, when, if you imagine all that, all the blood getting broken down, uh, the, those proteins that are inside those blood cells, you can get this thing called myoglobinuria. And I think we may, we, we may have talked about this before that the hemoglobin in your blood cells and parts of your blood cells, when they get filtered through your kidneys, it can do a lot of damage because it clogs up the renal tubules. Those are like delicate, dude, treat your kidneys like babies. You do not want to mess with those. They are so delicate and wonderful on the inside. Um, and if you're sending through a lot of big chunky proteins, like the insides of blood cells and myoglobin, um, it's going to hurt them. So we also will monitor their kidney values while they're in the hospital. A lot of times we'll get what we call a specific gravity on their urine to make sure that their kidneys are functioning properly. And of course, they're, if they're, if we're seeing that their urine is dark in color, that's always a sign that they're going to need uh, boluses of IV fluids. Of course, it's funny that I say of course, but these guys are on IV fluids um, as well as everything else. Um, but the additional IV fluids does help flush those that extra garbage out of their kidneys, all that extra myoglobin out of their kidneys to keep them functioning okay. Uh, hypotension, we talked about a little bit. Their blood pressure can definitely get low because of all the inflammation that's happening. The IV fluids helps keep their uh, their blood pressure up, and we often will check a blood pressure when periodically when they're in the hospital. Um, infection of the wound that can totally happen. Snake fangs are not the cleanest things in the world, even though they act like hypodermic hypodermic needles. They're not necessarily as clean as those, but of course these guys are so painful at the site of the bite um, that you usually can't even touch that area before they've gotten some kind of pain control. Uh, but of course, clipping and cleaning where the wound is, 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 is a good idea. Tissue sloughing. Uh, this is like the worst thing you can, if that tissue is dying, dying and losing its blood supply, it could just fall off, like just like rot and fall off. And that's worst case scenario. That can happen with a really, really bad envenomation. You know, if there's a lot of venom that that snake chose to drive into the dog's face, that can be real bad. Swelling can cause ischemia, which means it stops the blood supply because it's such a taut um, amount of fluid inside the tissues. And I mean, you see people in people, this is just super freaking nasty. Like they, like your arm can like turn black and just chunks of it fall off. Oh, for those of you with a sensitive stomach, perhaps stop listening now. Uh, but that, yeah, that, that, that I think is really kind of the most frightening and terrible thing. Um, I mentioned earlier the, the amount of venom that the snake injects makes a difference. So the injection of the venom by the snake is a voluntary action. Interesting. The snake can decide how much it wants to put in there. Um, 
you will hear that baby rattlesnake bites are worse than adult rattlesnake bites. And the reason why that is, is because a very young baby rattlesnake has not had the life experience or learned not to inject all of its venom all at once into anything that it bites. Um, these proteins in the venom, like the, this, the construction of the venom itself is highly complicated and it takes a lot of energy for the animal to produce this and store um, these chemicals inside their body. And so really for a snake, it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to get rid of all of it in one go. And so they're going to be conservative about it. A baby rattlesnake, though, doesn't necessarily know that. So a, if a baby rattlesnake bites you, it will often dump its entire load of venom into your body, which is not good. Um, you do get something called dry bites. Uh, dry bites are when the snake bites, but it doesn't unload any venom. It's really hard to tell what a dry bite is, I think. I mean, like you see puncture wounds, there's going to be swelling because, you know, because there's a wound there. It's probably more risky not to treat a bite that you see with your eyes um, than it is to bet on the fact that it's a dry bite because as we know, time is of the essence. And so treating these guys right away is really the best thing to do. Uh, there, you know, there's a thing about like put ice on it. Um, there's that old school sucking the poison out of the wound or you put a tourniquet on it. So I'm here to tell you that all of those ideas are like astronomically bad. Like just don't even just, just don't. It's, it's not worth it. It's, it's taking up. What do we like? time. It's taking up time um, while you're dealing with all those things that don't work. The one thing that I thought was a good suggestion from one of the doctors that I worked with, she worked in Florida. So there's a lot of like nasty snakes in Florida that'll bite you. She said, keeping your animal calm and quiet and not moving around a whole lot is the best thing because what you don't want to have do is have their heart pumping super fast and circulate all that venom throughout their body. I thought that was a good suggestion. So if you think it's happened, just like keep the poochie calm, don't let them run around and blow that venom all over their system through their vascular system. There's been a... <laughs> A couple, there's been a couple good ones that I can remember that um, most of which I've seen at the hospital that I'm at now, just because we see them more frequently there. I do remember a pair of Springer Spaniels that came in uh, that had both been in Livermore and they had both been um, attacked by the same snake. Uh, like the owner heard the rattle, both dogs ran out there and they stuck their faces in this snake and they weren't really sure um, which dog had gotten bitten because they had they'd seen the snake moving around they'd heard the rattle the dog screamed but they were but the dog they're Springer Spaniels they're crazy they're just bouncing all over the place they weren't really sure what had happened so the dogs came in the hospital and one of them its ear was kind of like they were brown and white dogs but this dog's ear was kind of wet and we, we saw these drips on the ground and it was like this brownish these like brown drips on the ground. And we're like, what is this? One of these dogs have diarrhea or like, what is that? Are they dirty? Are they? And we look at this dog's ear. And first of all, the dog was super hesitant to have us even touch the ear that was kind of moist and brownish. And we're like, oh, that's weird. And then if we looked closer, we could see that there was a wound. There was a wound on the ear. There was like kind of like 
in this case, it wasn't classic puncture bites. It was kind of like a two, a pair of scratches that had gone down the ear, but the blood that was coming out of those wounds was this brown fluid. It was so strange. It's like the venom was like breaking down the blood and like destroying it. So the blood that was coming out was not like normal blood. Um, and the other dog, we couldn't find any wounds on. Um, and so we had to assume that the the dog that had, that had the ear wound, that was the dog that gotten bit by the snake. So admitted to the hospital, gave it the anti-venin dog did fine, which is great. And that was very simple. Thank God. Straightforward. Never had a coagulopathy, never had any dips in blood pressure. Kidneys were fine. Um, I can't say the same for another dog that we saw. It's probably my second year at my new job. Um, one thing that you will see that you won't see uh, with rattlesnake bites as frequently as you hope uh, is dogs that are neurologically clinical for being envenomated. So what I mean is like, I mean, you will see dogs that have a wound, they're swollen, they're painful, but it's actually fairly rare that you see that their mentation has changed, that they seem weak or they seem like they're losing consciousness or any of that. Like it's really affecting their brain. It's mostly their tissues that are really going to be affected. But we had a poor dachshund that had put its face in a rattlesnake and had gotten bitten in the eye. And that is basically like an intravenous injection of snake venom. I mean, your eye is right next to your brain. This dog was a wet, like limp noodle when it got to the hospital. And of course, swelling, horribleness. Um, that dog was basically unconscious the entire time that we treated it. And we treated it with multiple doses of anti-venom, um, IV fluids. It had multiple IV catheters. It got plasma. But we could not save that dog. Like that, that was... It was too much. Like, first of all, if you think of all the things, that's a small animal that got that got bit. Um, it got bit in a place where it's very close to its brain. I mean, the chances of that dog surviving just from the location alone and the size were very, very low. However, I feel like I'm glad that there are more happy cases than not <laughs> with this particular, because it feels like you can do something, right? Like that feels like we have the, we have the technology people, we have the anti-venin, we have the, the type of treatments to treat these guys. Um, the first one I ever saw was a dog that uh, had been bitten Berkeley. Its head was literally a bowling ball. Like this dog got bit on the top of the head, right, right above its eyes. And its head swole to, I mean, literally a black beach ball. Its lips, its like whole face. I mean, there must have been a lot of venom in that bite because it was just like poofy poof. The ears were puffy. So we were really worried about tissue death and, uh, tissue death and, and sluff, sloughing with that particular animal because, I mean, the amount of swelling was just unbelievable. But with the multiple doses of, uh, of the IV antivenin and with IV fluids, that dog got better. Now that one, I believe also got some steroids because we had to control his own body's reaction to that venom. Cause that's part of what was making his head so swollen, but yeah, bowling ball dog did fine, totally survived. So that was, that's a good feeling one. Um, 
for those of you who are uh, interested in this type of in this type of thing, um, in in venomation and the Earth's uh, deadliest creatures, there's a fabulous book um, that I'll recommend. It's written by Christy Wilcox, and the title of the book is venomous uh, so it's easy to find how earth's deadliest creatures mastered biochemistry and a lot of the information that i got for this episode is out of that book i think venom is amazing you know and i actually think that there's this is worth mentioning a distinction between poison and venom um you say venom because venom is what comes out of a bite or a sting uh poison can come from other routes but venom specifically has to be you know from a a bite or a sting of something and it's cool it's really complicated it can benefit us uh they're actually one of the drugs that we use for for heart failure is a drug called uh, enalapril. Enalapril is derived from an old drug that was uh, invented in the 70s called captopril. Captopril is an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor, which helps with uh, blood pressure in heart patients. That was derived from elements in a South American venomous snake. So how about that? It helps the dogs sometimes. Um, as far as prevention of, of rattlesnake snake bites, I, I suppose I should talk about that a little bit. You generally don't want to be, you generally don't want to be where there's, first of all, in areas that you know to have rattlesnakes. And uh, usually there's warnings that are up on hiking trails if we know they're a problem. But tall grass and like sunny areas, that's where they like to be. And you'll hear them. It kind of sounds like bacon frying. It's you know, when they, uh, when they rattle their, their tail, uh, it's a warning. It means I'm here. Don't step on me. Um, I don't want to bite you. They don't really want to because they know that you're way too big to be prey and it's expensive for them to waste their venom on you. So keep your dogs on leashes in rattlesnake areas. That's really the best thing. Cause it's when they, you know, traipse in and they stick their head in a big sunny bush that they're going to get bit. Hmm bit in the sunny bush. Well, that'll do it for Cat Disgusted, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Thank you so much for for tuning in uh, for the summer series. Uh, We're off to fall now, and uh, I'll come back and talk to you guys soon. I promise we'll have some more good cases to talk about. It's been a busy summer, so I feel like there's going to be lots of good stories that I'll have to catch you guys up on. Um, Thank you, as always, for listening, and thank you for missing me. I know it was a while before I got this episode out, and I really appreciated hearing from everybody asking about when the next one was going to come out. Uh, So thanks, you guys. It means a lot. And uh, I'll see you on the flip side. Remember, do not come and see me at work. Have a good one, y'all.